Julie is going to be speaking to us this morning, and uh, I believe she'll be speaking from these particular Bible readings. So first one is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait and see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Then the Lord said to me, Write my answers plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Wealth is treacherous and the arrogant will never are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave, and like death, they are never satisfied. In their greed, they have gathered up many nations and swallowed many peoples. Reading from Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 from the Voice Translation. Write down my words and send them to the messengers of the church of Sardis. These are the words of the one who has the seven spirits of God, the perfect spirit, and the one who holds the seven stars. I know the things you do. You have claimed a reputation of life, but you are actually dead. Wake up from your death sleep and strengthen what remains of the life you have been given that is in danger of death. I have judged your deeds as far from complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you have received and heard. It is time to keep these instructions and turn back from your ways. If you do not wake up from this sleep, I will come in judgment. I will creep up on you like a thief. You will have no way of knowing when I come. But there are a few in Sardis who don't have the stain of evil works on their clothes. They will walk alongside me in white, spotless garments because they have been proven worthy. The one who conquers through faithfulness, even unto death, will be clothed in white garments, and I will certainly not erase that person's name from the book of life. I will acknowledge this person's name before my Father and before his heavenly messengers. That the person who is able to hear Listen to and follow what the Spirit proclaims to all the churches. And reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 to 39 from the voice translation. Remember this, and do not abandon your confidence, which will lead to rich rewards. Simply endure, for when you have done as God requires of you, you will receive the promise. As the prophet Habakkuk said, In a little while, only a little longer, the one who is coming will come without delay. But my righteous one must live by faith. For if he gives up his commitment, my soul will have no pleasure in him. My friends, we are not those who give up hope and are so lost, but we are of the company who live by faith and so are saved. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here again this morning. And yeah, like Blair said, it's been a wonderful time worshipping God and so grateful for his presence with us, so grateful for his word. And yeah, you've heard the, the key scriptures uh, that I'll be using this morning read out. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin this time together, we have need of your spirit. Jesus, you are the king and the captain and the Lord and the head of your body, the church. And we're gathered this morning, Lord Jesus, to bring you glory. Our ears are open, Holy Spirit, and so we ask you to make the plain things plain. We ask you to light up the understanding in our hearts and stir us to obey you, which is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen. So we're in chapter 2, and uh, last week we just sort of got into the first little bit. Um, chapter 1 ends with Habakkuk being quite overwhelmed. There's a lot going on. God said some things that he didn't expect him uh, to confirm. That is that Babylon is going to, God is using Babylon to judge and discipline Judah. And uh, so last week I talked about um, the, yeah, God now speaking. Okay, so God's been silent. Habakkuk's been saying, how long, God, and when are you going to speak? And now God replies. And he speaks from his lofty position, seated above the circle of the earth. We talked about that and how God's perspective 
from that place of governing from beginning to end that perspective is so different but he invites us into it that's the amazing thing and habakkuk gets brought up into this eternal perspective and god begins to speak and so there's four important themes in chapter 2 just really quickly that is waiting on god in prayer and we talked about um habakkuk the prophet himself and his resolve to wait on god even when it's difficult even when he doesn't understand what god is doing and in he's he's resolved to stay there he wants understanding The second thing is God begins to reveal that I have a global and eternal plan that I am unfolding and the generation that you were you are born into that I'm born into that Habakkuk was born into there are things happening in that generation that are moving towards God's uh final complete plan the the fullness of which is in Jesus Christ okay Jesus is bringing everything to its ultimate fulfillment and he does this for his glory and his wisdom is not to be questioned we don't get to question god's wisdom we do get to ask him for understanding in the generation that we live that we can live lives worthy of him the third thing is that the righteous person and this was read out this morning by blair this is habakkuk 2:4 the righteous person will live by his faithfulness to god Now the righteous person is always called to live in faithfulness to God but particularly this is being emphasized in a season when it is trouble and crisis and calamity hardship on every side unthinkable unthinkable things about to happen the righteous person will live by his faithfulness to god and evil may flourish for a time this is the fourth the fourth one evil may and in fact it will flourish for a time but god will judge it so today it's um the righteous person will live by his faithfulness to god so i wrote let's read this look how pompous he is something is not right in his soul he is not honest and just but the righteous one will live by his faithfulness that's the verse that's where we're going to go today another a way of saying that phrase and there's all different translations um but another way of saying it is the one who by faith is righteous shall live right the one who by faith is righteous shall live and as we walk through this this morning you you're going to see that you know a lot of people say oh yes i'm a christian uh and really we need we need clarification on that because sometimes when people say i'm a christian this is not their definition but this is the biblical definition and in fact you know paul in romans uh, I, i mean there's a there's a very uh, popular well known um theological doctrine it's called justification by faith and that simply is that we are saved because of our faith right in in christ jesus and that is absolutely true but faith is not without works is that true amen So to say I'm a Christian but there's no evidence of it in my life is missing something. And I challenge you this morning. If the evidence, if you could not be convicted of being a Christian in a in a, a law, you know, a court of law, perhaps you're not. So here we have in Habakkuk 2:4 there's 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 something being highlighted and contrasted here. The first thing is the proud right look how pompous he is something is not right in his soul he's not honest and just 
But then that is contrasted with, but the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. So there's two things. You can live by faith, which is to trust wholeheartedly in God's word and obey it. Or you can live with pride. That is to confidently rely on your own strength and understanding. And of course, this is what God is saying. This is, yeah, I know who the Babylonians are. I know that this is them. I know who they are better than you do. That was the astounding thing for Habakkuk, that he could use them. But God is also going to punish them. This is what comes out. He's also going to discipline them. And here's the thing. It's not just the Babylonians who are confidently relying on their own strength and understanding. Who else is at this time? Judah. Yes, that's right. Israel. They are as well. So this is meant to be a warning to those who are continuing on in their lawlessness, continuing on in their violence and their strife and and whatever that's going on. And even the priests and the prophets, the word of God is saying through Jeremiah, they've all they're all unfaithful. There's always a remnant, but the majority is unfaithful. So let's look at that. The one who by faith is righteous shall live, or the just will live by faith, or my righteous one will live by his faithfulness. You know, whatever your translation says there. When an Israelite hears, my righteous one will live by his faithfulness, what do they immediately think of? Put yourself back in Habakkuk's day. What are they thinking of straight away? No question. No question. Come on. Who who are they thinking of? Thank you. Who said Abraham? Well done. Well done. It's Abraham. They think of Abraham, father Abraham, had many sons. You know that song? Yeah. Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 verse 6. That's immediately what they're thinking of. It's not immediately what we were thinking of, but that's what they were thinking of because that was the first time it was said. And Abraham is a hero. And Hebrews 11 confirms that. which is the great chapter of, of the, the, the men and women of great faith. He was affirmed. Why? Because he believed God. He believed when God said, I'm going to give you an heir, even though you're an old man and Sarah is an old lady. How many of you, come on, how many of you would believe God? He believed God about the, the, his descendants and the land that God was going to bring him into. He also, in Hebrews 11, it mentions, remember that time he went up the mountain, Mount Moriah, to, to dedicate, uh, to sacrifice, sorry, um, Isaac. Even though it was through Isaac that God was going to bring those descendants. So if he actually sacrificed his son, which was God, that was, that was what God said, there was going to be, I don't know, what was going to happen. Except it says in Hebrews that Abraham believed, well, God could raise him from the dead. Well, God stopped it, didn't he? Because he was testing Abraham's faith. So Abraham is a man of faith and it is credited to him as righteousness. So when God says live by faith or live faithfully, he's talking about having a trust in God and his word that leads my heart to obedience. You cannot separate those two. You can't. If you're not willing to obey God, you don't believe God. So God requires us to submit to his wisdom for our good and his glory. And it is right and fitting because of who God is. And it brings us incredible blessing. If we resist trusting God, it's because we are evaluating God against our own wisdom and understanding. And that's exactly what the Babylonians were indicted for doing as well as Judah. They refused correction. Their hearts were made of stone, is what Jeremiah said. Paul picks up on this theme as well. You know that. Paul talks a lot about this in in Romans, also in Galatians, but particularly in Romans. In Romans 1, uh, verse 16 and 17, let me read 16 and 17 is coming up on the screen. I refuse to be ashamed of the wonderful message of God's liberating power unleashed in us through Christ. 
For I'm thrilled to preach that everyone who believes is saved, the Jew first and then people everywhere. This gospel unveils a continual revelation of God's righteousness, a perfect righteousness given to us when we believe. And it moves us from receiving life through faith to the power of living by faith. And this is what the scripture means when it says we are right with God through life-giving faith or we are justified through faith. That's the Passion Translation. I've used that deliberately because it really brings, I believe, what that scripture is saying out so clearly. And, and Paul, at the end of Romans, in chapter 10, he talks about what the problem is for Israel. Why is Israel unbelieving? And this is what he says. I can say about them that this is true. They're enthusiastic about God, but that won't lead that to him because their zeal is not based on true knowledge. In their ignorance about how God is working to make things right, they've been trying to establish their own right standing with God through the law. In other words, I'll do it my way. (laughs) Nothing wrong with the law, but the law was always going to point to Jesus, God's means for righteousness. So you can't have the law and reject God's means, his ultimate perfect means for righteousness, which is Christ. Okay, that's what's going on here. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Later, Just a few verses later. Belief begins in the heart and leads to a life that's right with God. Confession departs from our lips and brings eternal salvation. Hebrews, Blair read that to us this morning. Remember this and do not abandon your confidence, which will lead to rich rewards. Endure. For when you have done as God requires, you will receive the promise. And in a little while, a little while longer, the one who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one must live by faith. If he gives up this commitment My soul will have no pleasure in him. My friends, we are not those who give up hope. And so are lost. We are of the company who live by faith and are saved. And then this leads straight into the great chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, the the chapter about the heroes. And it begins with this, faith is is the assurance of things you have hoped for. The absolute conviction that there are realities you've never seen and it was by faith that our forebears were approved. That's powerful, isn't it? Faithful disciples will love and obey Jesus no matter what the cost. Can you say that? Faithful disciples will love and obey Jesus no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost. Eugene Peterson said this, feelings are important in many areas but completely unreliable in matters of faith. Discipleship is a decision to live what I know about God, to live by what I know about God, not what I feel about him or myself or my neighbor's. It's good, isn't it? We live in a world that's caught up with what it feels like. And if it feels good, it must be good. And we have to let faith rise. We have to feed our spirits so that our soul, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions, lives in obedience to Christ. Because it often doesn't want to. So the literal translation, as I said, is the one who by faith is righteous shall live. And judgment will come to those who reject God's word, his truth. Some of that judgment will occur while we are still on the earth. Think of, think of people like Noah, as in the days of Noah and the flood. Think of Lot and his family rushing out to escape the burning flames in Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of the prophet Daniel. There's also a call to die, right? There's a call to suffer new life. There's a call to lay down our lives, to 
pick up our cross, cross. We know what the cross means. Pick up our cross and follow Jesus if that's what he requires of us. Revelation 12 says the saints of God triumphed over the accuser by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And God is warning Habakkuk, are you going to love me still, Habakkuk? Are you, are you going to love me if I use Babylon to destroy Judah? You're still going to love me? And things don't go your way. If you don't understand what I'm doing, you're still going to love me? Are you living by faith or are you clinging to something at the risk of forfeiting your life? Have disobedience and compromise become justifiable options because God has disappointed you? What does your heart cling to in times of trouble? Who does your heart cling to? Do you still love him or has, have you lost some of that? Because of the burdens and the anxieties and the disappointments and the confusion. Just the stuff of life. Has your heart become dull? Do you feel alive with the love of Jesus this morning? Nothing hindering. Do you know that's our inheritance? That's what he wants for us. So throw off. Throw off anything. Throw off anything. That causes your heart to become dull and entangled. That's the solution. You don't know why your heart's not alive in love with Jesus this morning? Jesus knows. Ask him. Let's bring this closer to home. And I'm going to come now to the second Bible reading. Jesus led at the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, 1 to 6. And the message of that really is wake up and strengthen what remains. So this, this is a confronting letter to Sardis. Jesus looking way beyond the outward appearance. He's looking at the heart of the matter here. And although they had a reputation of being alive, Jesus, Jesus' verdict is you're dead. Wake up. Perhaps not dead, dead. Because he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Or you don't meet the requirements of my God. That's intense. This is to a church. One of the seven churches. What do we know about Sardis? It was devoted to the worship of the mother goddess Sibyl. And no temple worshipper was allowed to approach the temple of the gods with soiled or unclean garments. Maybe that's why Jesus then goes on and says, some of you have not soiled your garments, those who worship me. Dr. Andrew Tate writes this, her worship, that is Sardis, uh, the city, was of the most debasing character. Orgies were practiced at the festivals held in her honor. Sins of the foulest and darkest impurity were committed on these occasions. When we think of a small community of Christians rescued from such abominable idolatry, living in the midst of scenes of the grossest depravity, with early associations and companionships and connections, all exerting a force in the direction of heathenism, it may be wondered that the few members of the church in Sardis were not drawn away altogether and swallowed up in the great vortex. Not everyone in the church, though, as I said, succumbed. There's still a few, Jesus said. Some of you haven't given in to the temptations, the sensual temptations in the culture. You haven't soiled your garments. You're going to walk in robes of white. You're worthy. Cultural relevance or compromise. How much of the culture can we embrace in order to redeem it? What do you think? Because this is a big thing, you know. I hear, I, I, well, I hear a lot of it. People saying, oh, yeah, I do that because, you know, I can reach more people for Christ. I go, really? How many have you reached? I can go to that place because what I really want to do is have conversations, you know, about Jesus. Oh, yeah, tell me about the, the last one you had. Now, there are those who do that. But sadly, what I hear is a lot of 
justifying of my choices. There's a famous quote goes something like this. Is, this is only the first half of it. An entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. Isn't that true? Are we allowing culture to inform our thinking, even to raise our children? Are we willing to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us in an honest examination of our true condition? Someone once said, a Christianity without courage is cultural atheism. Our ability to to discern what we can and cannot embrace in the culture is absolutely critical to a continuing witness in the culture. You want to have a witness in the culture? You need to ask these questions. Can we discern this? Are we discerning it? I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned that the church is losing its way on matters of biblical truth, justifying beliefs and actions in the name of compassion, love, and cultural relevance. Are you concerned? Maybe it's not even occurred to you. It's all around us. I hope it's occurred to you. Progressive Christianity is a growing stream within the body of Christ. So progressive Christian beliefs regarding culture are heavily influenced by secular thought rather than biblical revelation. Okay, Secular thought, not biblical revelation. So when Bible teachings become socially unacceptable, think of a few, hmm, progressive Christianity tends to ebb and flow with culture rather than following the historic Christian tradition of upholding biblical truth. That's progressive. They argue that Christianity has to be remade if it's going to survive. In other words, that's code for, we need to help God a little bit because he's out of date. Erwin Lutzer, he's, he's, uh, um, I, read my, <laughs> I read Hitler's Cross about 20 years ago, and uh, he's one of my... Uh, I like to read his stuff. It's easy to read, by the way. Those of you who need the easy-to-read stuff, Erwin Lutzer. He's written a book called We Will Not Be Silenced, and he writes, Progressives believe that the evangelical church is toxic, filled with racial injustice, sexism, Islamophobia, and shaming judgmentalism. Their goal is to purge the church from these innocuous attitudes and ideas and cultivate a more compassionate, inclusive, and culturally relevant form of Christianity. Thus, they surrender ground to culture under the banner of progress. As contemporary culture grows more intolerant of historic Christianity, the church is lured into accommodation and ends up being absorbed by the world. The lamp flickers and then goes out. Is this not the church inside us? This is what's happened. And Jesus is saying, wake up. You are asleep in the light. Asleep. Wake up. This is one of the reasons we know we have to gather together in sacred assembly because we drift. And Jesus is saying, wake up. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. How much plainer can John be than that? And yet we are in love with the things in the world. Are we not? Seriously. There are many ways that we express our love of the world. And I don't mean we can't enjoy the good things that God has created for us to enjoy. That's not it. One thing that I find particularly disturbing is our obsession with technology. Yes, it has many good, helpful benefits, but there's a dark side to it. Now, we know that. We would say yes to that. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer says in his book. Our generation, not just the progressives, is being lured into a worldview that is antithetical to Christianity 
A survey showed that most Christians follow no guidelines for what they watch on television, their smartphones, their tablets, or their computers. Most teenagers have seen dozens of R-rated movies, pornography, it's everywhere. What was once called biblical separation is neither taught nor applied, and finding no way to withstand the addictions of our culture, we have simply accommodated them. As individuals and families and churches, let us discern the times and the seasons that we are in. Let's earnestly wrestle. Let's earnestly wrestle with these questions. And where do we draw the line to keep ourselves and our children from a world that crashes into our lives constantly through technology? Children imitate their parents. That's how God made it. And it's to be a blessing. It's to be so that a godly heritage can be passed on and preserved from generation to generation. So what are they imitating? I'm talking about in the church. What are they imitating? Children are like wet cement. James is blunt. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Oh, how do we do this? How do we live in the world but not become of it? And this is not to put condemnation on you. This is to say, new life, God has answers. But have we just decided, well, we just have to accommodate this stuff instead of believing that God might have some strategies. He's looking to download to the parents of this age who have the belief and the faith of Daniel's parents. Prophet Daniel. How do you train a teenager, a teenager to go into captivity in a pagan culture to become a eunuch and to stand their ground? I can't eat that food. How do you do that? We need help. But we need to own that we need help. We need to wake up and look what's happening around us. Seriously. I don't have all the answers. I just know that God is waiting for people to get together and say, Okay, let's talk about this. Let's pray this through. How can we do this? We live in community. How can we use that to our advantage to to protect the ones that are coming up? I mean, do you put a 12-year-old child behind the wheel of a V8 engine? No. No, right? You all agreeing with that, yes? Right. This is a V8 engine. No, it's worse than that. Turbo boosted all the rest, all the gadgets, everything you can do to upgrade it. That's what a smartphone is. And unless, unless we find ways to bring boundaries, solid teaching, right? Unless you're training your infant child now how precious they are to God, And that God has made them for his glory and set them apart. And they have a purpose and a destiny to be pure and holy and set apart. And that God will help them when they have to stand. Because they will have to stand. We are all going to have to stand. Then we just accommodate. There you go. You you, you You want your phone at 10? Okay. Well, I guess all your friends do. You know, when I was growing up, it wasn't like this. I I, I own it completely. We didn't have... The window to technology was, was not open yet, like it is now. That floodgate was not up. But nevertheless, my parents instilled in me a sense of the fear of the Lord and what it means to be holy, as in set apart. Different. All the time, it seems like... <laughs> I had to wear different clothes. I had to do, couldn't go to stuff, couldn't be in certain places, couldn't do this on Sunday, couldn't do that. You might say that, that sounds really legalistic. You know, in our culture it does. It wasn't back then. That was just called radical Christianity. <laughs> right? 
That was called set apart. But I had this in me. And, you know, when I got my, my driver's license, as soon as I turned 17, pretty much, and I had my, little, my first little car, which I paid for because my parents believed you go out to work at the age of 14 and you earn your stuff, so I, had, I bought it. And um, that's good, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and I had these, I had, I had favourite, you know, I had some artists that I like to listen to. Some of you are going to laugh. Marsha Hines, <laughs> Barry Manilow, even the Bee Gees. They were pretty cool back then. And so I had my little cassette, cassettes. Do you guys even know? Do you know what this looks like? This is a cassette. You put these in your cassette player, in your car, and music comes out. It's amazing. We were going through our LP collection yesterday, weren't we, Wayne? Yeah. Bring back Petra. <laughs> Bring back Carmen. Riot. It's a riot. Who remembers that song? A righteous invasion of truth. Yeah, we were pumping that out yesterday. Our kids love Petra. That's all they want right now. It's Petra. Sorry, grandchildren. Just got confused there. Nathan was singing it at the top of his lungs. It was so cool. Because we played those things to him and Daniel. <laughs> yeah, you're smiling, Dan. So I'm in my car one day. And I used to listen to the radio as well, you know. Most 17-year-olds do. And the Lord starts to speak to me. And he's like, he basically wasn't like, like conversation or anything. It was just this impression. Everything that you listen goes in. Everything that you're listening to goes in. And I knew he was saying, don't listen to that. Don't, don't, don't listen to that anymore. Put worship music on. So I bought worship cassettes and put them in. And I put those cassettes away. And I didn't listen to the radio. If you've ever driven in the car with me, I don't listen to the radio ever. <laughs> Never have. From, from right back then. Alcohol. For me, I was, I was brought up in a home where my parents abstained from alcohol. For religious reasons. But I had to get to an age where I made that decision for myself. And I thought, I did get to that age. And got married when I was 18. 19, sorry. You were 18? No, you were 20. 21. Yes, 19, I got married and, and it was like, okay, I can, I can make this decision for myself now because I'm not under my parents' you know, leadership in the home anymore and I respected their wishes under their leadership. Teenagers, you need to learn that. You need to honour your parents. Not because you think that what they're saying is right. Oh, that's good. I'll honor that. No, because God says, you see, that's what it means to believe God and act. You honor. It's faith. It's faith. Because God says, children, obey your parents. Right? Okay, back to the story. So I had to make a decision. And as I prayed about it, I thought, well, I'm free not to. There's actually nothing. The scripture just, you know, it simply says, don't be drunk with alcohol and the more I thought about it and I thought about the people I had already had many conversations with people who'd either been damaged by alcohol or damaged by people who consumed alcohol and I you know I said Lord it's okay I don't need to start consuming alcohol now I'm actually happy not to by that stage I knew I was going to be a pastor's wife, and is like, no, this is probably a good thing. I will just keep that. And I have kept that. And I don't consume alcohol. Now, that is not, this is, this is a personal choice. I'm letting you into some of the way that God has spoken to me on things. And I believe God wants to speak to us about things, but he won't if there's a resistance in our hearts. There were other things. Worship. Now, because, you know, I was, a, I, I was singing from primary school and, and growing up. Anyway, my 
teenage years and 20s and 30s, whatever, people would ask me to sing at different events. Oh, could you sing at my wedding or could you sing at... No, they didn't ask me to sing at their funeral. Other people did that. But Or my, my birthday party or I've got this going on. Could you come and just do some whatever? I'd be like, yeah, sure. If I could do it, I'd go. You know, about 20 years ago, maybe 15 to 20 years ago, God said to me, Julie, don't want you doing that. Just use your voice to worship me. Just use it for that. Set it apart for me. I went, oh. And I had to start saying no to people. I think the first few times I had to say no, people were a little bit offended, actually. Didn't understand it, and I quite understand that. But that was what God said to me. Little things. A number of years ago, when I did my shopping, often used to buy like the, like a particular a magazine at the till. Now, people don't, I don't know, do people still read magazines these days? I think with the internet, perhaps not so much. But I used to, that was just part of my weekly shopping. I'd like to look at this and look at that. And God said to me, Julie, do you know, I don't want you to do that. Because there's things in those magazines that are actually impacting the way you think and view life and people. And I went, okay. And I stopped buying the magazine at the checkout. These are little things. There are many more little things. I could talk to you about clothing. Don't live to clothe like the rest of the people in society. Clothe yourself and say, Jesus, what do you think? And if you're married, say to your husband, is this, is this modest? Now, this sounds archaic, doesn't it? People don't talk about this anymore. I'm talking 20 years, people. Can you see how fast things have gone in an opposite direction? But I tell you what, God is still concerned about personal holiness. Doesn't matter when, doesn't matter what age, what generation, he is still concerned about what we do, what we see, what we hear, how we dress, where we go, the friends we have, the conversations we have, and most of all, how we love him. Yes, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. So, three resolutions I want to encourage you today. First of all, let's be a resolute people. Let us resolve to preach Christ as king and preach the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom is here, but the kingdom is coming. The kingdom to come, the king. And the king of the Jews. He's the king of the nations of the world, but he's coming back to Jerusalem. Preach the whole story. Creation, Christ, recreation. Get the end in. Because this is what God is so keen to show Habakkuk and Daniel and all the other prophets. There's a day coming. And I tell you, the crisis, Jesus said, the world will, has never seen a day like it. And if it were not cut short, even the elect would die. Okay, this is what we've got to get our eyes on. This is what we have to teach our children. Are you preparing your children for this day? And are you preparing them to suffer? Are you preparing them to be different in the culture and to accept the fact that I am different? I am different. There's something wrong if I'm not different. Jesus says, I'm set apart. He's taken me from the kingdom of darkness and he's transferred me to the kingdom of light. Well, let's have light on our faces. Let's have light in our lives. Let's do things of the light, not the dark. Is that so hard? No, this is, this is who we are. We are not of those who shrink back and are lost. We are of those who press on and live by faith. The righteous ones will live by faith. Okay, so let's resolve to preach Christ. Let's, the whole thing, not just parts of it. Yes, Paul said, people are going, they're not going to put up with sound um, doctrine in the last days. Because they're going to be lovers of self. Who wants to hear what Jesus has got to say when you're a lover of self? Jesus says, lay down your life. 
We are coming up against it, new life. We, the church is coming up against it. We are already against it. We're already there. Don't dangle your children over darkness, right? Stop accommodating things that they can't even handle. Let us resolve not to bow down to the cultural sexual revolution because Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Anyone want to see God? And Jesus also prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. In the truth. There are so many scriptures that exhort us not to compromise. Don't exchange purity. Exchange purity for a moment of fleshly indulgence at any level. And then the third resolution, let us resolve to love Jesus Christ passionately with our whole heart, mind and strength. To be determined to know him and to suffer with him. Darren Roberts writes in an article titled, The Church Boy Who Never Grew Up. This is not a sexist statement. It's, it's a good statement, applied to everyone, okay? But it's called, The Church Boy Who Never Grew Up. Nobody trusts him to stand on God's word alone to suffer for a conviction. He has no stomach to fight for Christ because his loyalty is not to Christ. It is to himself. He will stand for truth occasionally, but only when he decides the cost is not too great. Convictions that would cost him are too much for his, are too much for his, for man's approval to endure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a church boy who grew up. You know Dietrich Bonhoeffer? You've read The Cost of Discipleship? Or any other books. He was one of a few Germans who dared to stand up and fight against Hitler and his perverted purposes. And in fact, you know, he, he won in one of the darkest days in history. And it inspires me. His life inspires me to lay hold of the same courage and conviction. You need to read books about people whose lives are totally Christ-centered And encourages you, inspires you to do the same. He said this, there is no way to peace along the way of safety. For peace must be dared. It is itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. Hmm. To demand guarantees is to want to protect oneself. Peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hand of Almighty God, not trying to direct it for selfish purposes. Battles are won, not with weapons, but with God. And they are won when the way leads to the cross. Who is prepared to take a stand today, even if it leads you to the cross? I'm talking about for your children. I'm talking about it for yourselves. If you believe the word of God, we are going to have to stand. We have to stand. At the gallows, his last words to his fellow prisoners were these. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Let's stand together. We're going to close this morning by reading Ephesians 1 verses 9 to 12. This is from the voice translation. It's going to come up on the screen. And new life, I don't know if you're reeling from shock or what, what's going on. It's very quiet out there. But I want you to speak this. Please join me and speak this with conviction. This is Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Let's read it together. With all wisdom and insight, he has enlightened us to the great mystery at the center of his will. With immense pleasure, he laid out his intentions through Jesus, a plan that will climax when the time is right, as he returns to create order and unity, both in heaven and on earth, when all things are brought together under the anointed's royal rule. In him, we stand to inherit even more. As his heirs, we are predestined to play a key role in his unfolding purpose that is energizing everything to conform to his will. As a result, 
we, the first to place our hope in the anointed one, will live in a way to bring him glory and praise. Because you too have heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation. And because you believed in the one who is truth, your lives are marked with his seal. This is none other than the Holy Spirit who was promised as the guarantee toward the inheritance we are to receive when he frees and rescues all who belong to him. To God be all praise and glory. Amen. Powerful words. Do we believe it? That's the only question this morning. That is the issue of faith. Do we believe it? And now are we living it? Am I being moved further and further into obedience, no matter what the cost? If it takes me to the cross, I have grandchildren. I've got an invested interest in God's strategies for this generation. And I know He's got them. The question is, have we been so impacted? Are we so believing Him that we would get on our knees and say, Jesus, help us. Give to your body the strategies. Give us the courage. Give us the guts to be different, to model that to our children and teenagers to be different. Different. Children to be different. And when they're the only one who doesn't get certain rights and privileges, they know. They know it's because Jesus has called them to be different. And they're honoring their parents who have a little more life experience and idea about it all. And yes, it costs. Yeah, I was the odd one out in my public school. I was the only one who wasn't allowed to go to the year 10 social. <laughs> well, that's what it felt like anyway. Maybe I wasn't the only one. But I had to learn to stand in those things. And you know what? I didn't want to rebel against Jesus. I loved him. He'd revealed himself to me when I was a child. So I clung on to him. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You see, children obey your parents. Parents love Jesus, model, lead righteously, and that blessing goes from generation to generation, and God will not fail. Yes, what is it? What is that? The one who by faith is righteous shall live. God will make sure of it. Amen.